Welcome to Singing Teachers Talk, the podcast that brings you great interviews, insightful discussions and advice around the topic of singing and teaching singing. Now it's over to your host for today's episode. It's me, Alexa Terry. Hello, my guest today is the Associate Professor of Voice and Theatre, Coordinator of Musical Theatre Voice Training and Artistic Director of the CCM Vocal Pedagogy Institute of Shenandoah Conservatory. He has authored articles which have been published in the likes of the Journal of Singing and has contributed to titles such as The Manual of Singing Voice Rehabilitation by Leda Scarce and the So You Want to Sing book series by Nats. He has presented for many panels including Vocology in Practice and the Pan American Vocology Association and Dr Matthew Edwards I'm having a bit of a moment getting to speak to you because I've watched so many of your interviews and your panel discussions so I feel like I'm talking to a bit of a celeb but (laughs) I'm very happy to get the chance to chat with you how are you? I'm doing good thanks for having me I'm happy to be here to chat. I just want to jump in and ask you what do you think the singer needs to know in terms of the science behind things? Because you have a course that's called How the Voice Works, which kind of goes into all these fundamentals. So what do you feel about that? So, you know, I play guitar, I play piano, I can play a little drums and all, you know, several other instruments. And with all of those instruments, I understand enough that when something's going wrong, I know what to do. So if I'm out and my electric guitar starts acting up, I know how to, you know, look inside real quick, see if I've got a wire that's been pulled off or shorted or what I need to adjust. So I think that it's reasonable that singers can do the same thing. So that is meaning at a very basic level to understand that they have a power source, the respiratory system, and to have some understanding about how it works at a basic level, that when you breathe in and you fill your lungs full of air, that that air wants to get back out. And so the more air you take in, the more air that wants to get out, that'll make you louder. The less air you take in, the less air that's gonna come out, it's gonna make you a little bit quieter. So it doesn't have to be in depth about understanding every muscle name, but just that basic biomechanics of how the respiratory system works, how abdominal contraction works. Then thinking about the vocal fold level is understanding that's where the buzz happens. And so if you want breathy singing, you need lightly closed vocal folds. If you wanna have a more edge to the sound, then you're gonna have to close those vocal folds up a little bit for a belt or for a, you know, overdrive or curb as they call it over in CVT, you know, for some of the more rock and roll kinds of sounds. They don't have to memorize the muscle names. They just need to know that certain sounds coordinate the body's ability to make softer buzzy qualities and doing other exercises or other warm-ups is going to help coordinate the body's ability to do more buzzy full voice things. And understanding enough about their vocal tract to be able to identify locations of tension. So if they're feeling a lot of strain in their throat to realize those are constrictor muscles and that they can get those constrictor muscles out of the way. If they're starting to notice that their tongue is pulling back a little bit when they sing for them to be able to do exercises to get that out of the way. Or if they notice that their jaw is really tight from the day of, you know, just being stressed out at their day job or whatever else they've been doing to know that they can get in there and massage that masseter muscle and get it to let go to get into a better place. So to me, it's about like getting them to understand the basics so they can troubleshoot on their own so that they don't feel like they're tethered to their instructor, that the only way that they can, you know, troubleshoot is if somebody is there with them. I want them to be able to go explore to look up things online to find a teacher online who says something that they haven't heard before for them to be able to try it and then have good questions to bring back and say, hey, when I was trying this, I think it was doing this, is it? And then we can have a good conversation about it. So, you know, just I think of it as a consumer level understanding of the voice, right? They know enough how to keep it functioning, but they don't have to know enough to be able to form it tune on their own or try to work that up. And that doesn't necessarily apply a whole lot on a lot of the commercial side of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I don't go that far in depth with them. But, you know, basics of function. Mm. And do you find any resistance to that explanation at all? No, I don't find resistance. I find some people it just doesn't make sense to them and that's fine. So what I always say is be introduced to it. And then if you're like, yeah, I see red when I sing, then fine. We're going to work on colors of red when you sing Mm -hmm. and we'll continue to try to connect the dots. But, you know, I think that there are so many, at least in the States, there's so many shows for kids that talk about how things work. So, you know, my kids like Nature Cat and I'm sitting at the dinner table one night and they're singing a song about bioluminescence. It's how things make light. 
And this is, you know, when this was, was probably, they were eight and four, my kids were, and they're singing this song and telling me all about how plants and animals can light up because of bioluminescence. They find these things fascinating. It's not just my kids. I see my, uh, you know, nieces and nephews doing the same thing, the neighborhood kids. They know how stuff works because of the educational programming. And I think a lot of STEM that happens in our schools as well, which is the science, technology, engineering, and math. So I think that this generation is a lot more interested in knowing how things work. And I think that I actually get a lot of people who come to me uh, for private lessons because they weren't finding out what it actually did. They were just being told to sing through their unicorn horn or to, you know, spin the breath more. And it didn't make any sense to them. And they heard that I could explain what was actually happening. And that's what they wanted. Hmm. So, yeah, you know, you always adapt to the person that's in front of you and you always cultivate the artist that you're working with. But I think that a lot of people really benefit from a basic understanding. Mm. How would you go about finding out whether a singer is better with imagery or better with audio or, or better with a text written out? Is it about play or is there a certain question that you ask them when they come in so you know where to direct your explanations? I think it's about <clears throat> play and exploration. I often ask them when we do something, I'll say, what was that for you? Instead of saying, you know, how did that feel or how did that look or what visual, I say, what was that for you? And then if they don't have an immediate explanation for it, I say, well, did you see a color? Did you get an image when you sang? Did you feel a sensation? Did you hear a certain kind of a sound? What was your personal experience of when we got that to happen? So at their feedback by giving that open-ended question will often lead me to the kind of learner that they are and allow me to custom tailor my feedback to meet their needs. Mm. What would you say are the main ingredients to conducting a successful voice lesson? Okay. So first of all, warm them up a little bit and warming up is just getting them a second to zone in and like check in with their body, be aware of what's happening. You know, there's some benefits of definitely warming up the mucosa that covers the vocal folds and the mucosa, the vocal tract to make everything feel a little bit better. Then I usually go into some technical work and where I usually take the technical work is towards flexibility. So, you know, at some stages, let's say we have somebody who's really wanting to learn how to belt. They have no vocal fold closure. We're going to spend time really working on adduction, getting those vocal folds together. But, you know, when we've moved past that stage and the vocal folds are already adducted, we're going to spend some time trying to sing from, you know, full voice all the way back to breathy and then breathy back to full, trying to do everything in between, taking notes up and learning how to belt the high note, learning how to sing the high note breathy, learning how to belt it with warmth, learning how to belt it with brightness. So in that technical work, you're really just trying to get agility so that the body is able to just respond to different cues. And then you go into working on the songs that somebody is preparing, whether that's for a musical, for, you know, their set list for a gig they have coming up on the weekend. And when you're doing that work, you're trying to connect the dots between the agility and the flexibility you've been developing in the technical work over to the song. Mm -hmm. But I think the key thing is, is as we get into working on the song, we also then have to bring in the story. So you need to then start being able to say, okay, so when we are doing our vocal warmups today, we are working on belting that high D. Now in this song, when you're going up into your belt quality, it's like you're exclaiming to the world, I'm here. So I want you to think about calling out to the world that you're here as you sing that high note, instead of worrying about what it feels like, what visualization you're having. Let's see if we can just let it call out. And so we start then trying to move them towards artist um, directed singing. And then if they struggle and when you say call it out, they can't do it, then you break it down and say, so remember that exercise? Let's do that exercise. You work around that high note, then try to get them to think of that exercise as being calling and then get them to think only about calling as they go into that note. Mm -hmm. So it's really about like, you know, zoning into their body, getting things set, starting to develop the agility to make all the sounds that they might need. And then when you get into the song, trying to let them think like an artist and to get everything to be driven by what they want to say or the mood they want to set, the grooves that they're living in. But, uh, you know, really trying to keep them out of their head. You want to keep mm -hmm. them in their body, in their soul and out of their, you know, intellectual overanalyzation that especially some of them like to do. Yeah, sure. And what would you say is the most efficient lesson length to encompass all of that? You know, I think it depends. I think that, you know, when I'm working with somebody to get started, if they have a lot of technical work that needs to get done, sometimes I'll keep them at a half hour. 
because I'll just say to them, let's just spend like, you know, the first six to eight weeks just really coordinating your ability to make all these different sounds. And we use excerpts of songs at that stage. So I might say if we're working on chest voice, let's sing the beginning of Rolling in the Deep because it's got a really nice, strong chest equality. Let's get down in the bottom of your chest voice. We'll work on that. Or, you know, go to some simple like Nirvana, some Pearl Jam, something that's got that lower body of the voice and not worry about all the high notes. As they start though, getting those core technical ingredients so their body is responding or if they come in, they're already in that place. Sometimes 40 minutes, 45 minutes is the ideal. So you've got that time to warm up. Then you have, you know, you can warm up for 20 minutes, work on songs for 25 minutes or so. But as they are getting to the point where the songs are working well or they're already a working professional and they come in and they've got a lot of rep that they need to cover to get ready for a show, to get ready for auditions or to get their set list prepped, that's when I usually go towards an hour long session. Mm -hmm. So that way we can spend, you know, especially if they're a working pro, they've got a set uh, coming up. We'll maybe only tell them to warm up on their own, maybe vocalize, check in for 10 to 15 minutes and then try to spend 45 minutes working through their set list so that we can really get them prepared. Mm -hmm. So I think it's flexible based off of the needs of the person you're working with, the timeline before their performance or before their audition, whatever it is that they're working with. But I think that there's definitely different times that you need that 30 or 45 or an hour. You know, Mm -hmm. if you have an injured singer, somebody that got an injury, they're coming to you for help to get back onto, you know, their feet again, I think a half hour is usually enough. You don't want to overburden them yet. So yeah. keeping them just as an, in an easy place to get them back to themselves and then start inching it back up. Mm-hmm. You know, every once in a while, I'll have somebody come from out of town and we'll do 90 minutes, two hours. You know, that's a lot for a lot of singers. For others who are doing two-hour sets, that's nothing to them. And sometimes that is what they need. You need time to go through their whole, you know, two-set, two 45-minute set, two sets. And that hour and a half, two hours is the ideal time. Mm-hmm. But... uh most of mine are around 45 to an hour. Hmm. When you're working with a singer, how do you know that they have reached their physiological maximum compared to whether they can just be pushed up a little bit more, whether they can get their belt a little bit higher, whether they can reach a little bit of a higher range? So I'm always tracking where they are from the first day. I keep in my notebook writing where they were, um, how things are progressing. I think that's important. You want to notice, I mean, if you have somebody who comes in and they were hitting, you know, C's and belting C's and it was no problem. And the next thing you know, they're hitting F's with no problem in the course of six weeks. That tells me their body does want to do that. So it may be that it's a little early for them to be doing that. But most people don't jump from barely belting a C to belting an F unless that's what their body's meant to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, on the flip side of that, if I have a student who I'm working with who comes in with a C, Takes six to eight weeks to get the D. The D sharp is a little bit tough to get to. They keep wanting to do Fs, and the D sharp is still tough to get to. That's when I start going, I think you're at a physiological max right now. Now, mm-hmm. a physiological max isn't always permanent, but in that moment, you're, you've been taking a long time to progress just up to this D. The D sharp is still tough. I think we're at a physiological max right now. Mm-hmm. Now, the other things that I listen for is as we're working on high notes, if I start losing some of the brilliance in the sound, so we know that there's that ah clarity in a vocal quality. If that vocal quality was there on like that high E, we're belting a high E, or if you got a tenor that's trying to sing high Bs, and that brilliance is there, you hear those nice buzzy sounds. And 10, 15 minutes later, they're doing everything the same, but you're not hearing that brilliance anymore. That's a sign to me that things are starting to dry out or swell up a little bit. And we've probably reached the maximum amount of time that their body is capable of doing that right now. Mm -hmm. I write that down and say, you know, it took 15 minutes before they fatigued. And then you track that. If six weeks, eight weeks down the road, they're able to do it for 20, 25 minutes, then you just hit a temporary limit and they're increasing their stamina. But if six, eight weeks down the road, you're still, you know, getting tired at 10, 15 minutes on that note, then that's a good indication to you that you're reaching a physiological max. Mm-hmm. Um, if you notice that their volume possibilities are pretty much non-existent, they can sing a note at one singular volume, can't really make it louder or softer. That's usually an indication that you're reaching a physiological max. They have one way to do it, no ability to finesse. So we look out for that as well. And then we look out for notes that start to disappear. 
So if the singer is able to sing that high E or that high B, but all of a sudden, you know, after 10 times of singing that note, it's starting to go away, but they're like, but I have the, you know, the E flat or the B flat. Well, that's an indication that they're not really there yet. And if that persists for weeks or months, then that starts to tell you that's a physiological max. Mm-hmm. You know, I, uh, I have tenor envy. I wish I was one. I can sing a high B or a high C about five to 10 times and then it's done and it's, it goes bye-bye. It's yeah. not something I would do in front of anybody either because it's not beautiful. It just makes me happy that it comes out. But so that's my own indication that no, I am truly a baritone and uh, the G's will come out all day long. But once you start getting up A's, they're there for a good amount of time. And then they start to disappear after 45 minutes or an hour or so. And the B flat, B and C, they're there a couple times, but that's it. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I know those are my own physiological maxes that no matter what I do, who I work with, how much I practice, those notes never show up consistently. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you have to take into mind the person's speaking voice. I think when you hear me talk, you can realize, yeah, he's not a tenor. And so, <laughs> you know, you listen to the singer's voice and you also get some indication of whether or not that's in the realm of possibility for them. Yeah. There's always, always exceptions to the rule. And so you always have to be open minded. But if you're looking for guideposts, I think those guideposts are pretty safe to uh, follow. Mm-hmm. Matt, do you like games? Yes. Do you want to play a game? Sure. Let's do <laughs> I it. I feel like that creepy thing from the Saw films. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not that kind of game. <laughs> <laughs> no, I won't make you uh, chain your ankle to a bathtub and hack, your, hack it off with a hacksaw. <laughs> Or whatever they do. <laughs> yeah, that'd movies. be a little rough. Make a big mess <laughs> on the carpet. So we spoke with the Voice Collective, the lovely Cassie Mikett and William Pajora about cross genre training, yeah. um, and we know that musical theatre does this. We have quite a few genres to cover, from the golden age legit stuff right through to the jukebox and the pop rock stuff of contemporary. So I thought, why don't we take a bit of a game? And it did have a name. I called it Spinning in the Rain. <laughs> because it's <laughs> I like it. Always raining here. But you know what? I thought actually that's quite a crap name. So it doesn't have a name. <laughs> it's just wheel spinning. Um, there's so many components to technique in musical theatre and covering lots of different styles and genres. So I thought, why not leave it to the wheel? And this is usually how me and my husband decide what takeaway we're going to have. <laughs> nice. So on wheel one, we have the different genres of musical theatre. And then on wheel two, we have the different areas of technique. So the breath, ah, okay. the larynx the, and the vowels. So I'm going to spin and see what happens. And then we'll go in on that subject. Does that sound like fun? Is this something you're going to yeah. want to pull out of Christmas? <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. So spinning one. That's the sound and everything. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Nice. Contemporary pop rock. And so our area of technique is... The suspense. (laughs) I know, it's very real. Breathing, all right. Breathing. Okay, so what are we going to need to consider when we're doing contemporary pop rock musicals and the breath? Great. So the first biggest thing is, is remember that these are amplified. So the history of musical theater starts off unamplified. You're singing in theaters. You have to project your voice to the back. A lot of that, uh, you know, classical technique work was beneficial because classical singers were projecting their voices acoustically as well. So in the early days of golden age musicals, In projection, we need to think about having enough air in our lungs to project the voice and then using it accordingly. When you get into microphone singing and amplified singing, you're no longer trying to project your voice 50, 100 foot away from you. You're trying to project it 50 to 100 centimeters away from you or less. So all of a sudden, the need for your respiratory management changes. And there's research to back this up. Uh, Tom Cleveland and his colleagues at the Vanderbilt uh, Medical Center here in, in the Nashville, Tennessee area, they did some work and they were looking at award-winning country singers and how they breathed mm-hmm. and all five of the six i think it was or seven of the eight breathed the way that they spoke so they breathed like they speak when they were singing the one exception to that was somebody with classical training and that person breathed like a classical singer but so i think the takeaway from that is when left to their own devices without training they breathe like they sing they've won awards they're doing just fine mm-hmm. right these are high level performers 
There's a great book by Thomas Hickson. And it's called uh, Respiration and Singers. And the, he goes into the science behind respiration and really breaks a lot of things down. And one of the things he talks about is that the more air you have in your lungs, the louder you will be. The less air you have in your lungs, the quieter you will be. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of things that point in this direction that say that the amount of air you're intaking, the amount of breath pressure that you are using is directly correlated to the amount of acoustic output, right? Or the amplitude, acoustic amplitude of your voice. So I don't spend a whole lot of time in most instances on this contemporary pop stuff dealing with breath. Mm. We usually figure if it's working, it's good. So in most speech-like sections, they don't have to think much. And in fact, if they try to take in a big breath, if they try to use a lot of abdominal contraction, it could actually get in the way. They get too much subglottic pressure, their throat starts to react by squeezing, and then all of a sudden they are getting a really kind of a strained sound as they sing, or they're not hitting the high notes the way that they want to because it's just too much pressure. A high note in pop rock might be, hey, just real nice and easy, hey, instead of a big, you know, acoustic sound. If you put a big breath under that light quality, you're going to run into trouble. Mm -hmm. Now, when they get to high notes or big sustained phrases, that's where we might pay attention to the breath. But a lot of times what we're paying attention to is resisting the collapse. Again, they don't need to blow a lot more air through or at the vocal folds to get uh, you know, the amplitude to carry their voice acoustically. They just need enough air to keep those vocal folds vibrating over the length of the phrase. So on those high notes, we're often thinking of breathing in, maintaining the sensation of expansion, letting it be buoyant so it doesn't get too fixed, so it comes in gently as they use up their air, but then making sure that they have enough air to get through that long phrase, and then as needed, maybe contract the abs. But I think that we have to totally rethink the way that we use breathing compared to what classical singers do. And we also have to accept that different body types breathe differently. You know, if you're somebody who's got a really more V-shaped configuration to their body, you don't have a whole lot of room for abdominal contraction as opposed to somebody who's maybe a little bit more pear-shaped. Someone who's more pear-shaped may really feel expansion in the lower part of their body, whereas somebody who's V-shaped may feel it more in their upper chest and back. And as long as it's not getting in the way, it's okay. And there's actually research that backs this up. Jennifer Calgill published in the Journal of Singing, uh, talking about so, uh, somatypes on the body and their natural inclinations to breathe and then the respiratory measurements that she was able to capture from them. And what she found was whether they felt expansion abdominally, more horizontally across the ribcage or a little bit more vertically, they had the same uh, forced expiratory volume. So we're getting the same output, even though they're breathing for their body type. Mm -hmm. Would you have a specific or go-to exercise to help somebody take in less air than they might feel that they have to have? Yeah, a lot of times what we end up doing is having them go ahead and breathe whatever way they're used to because it's hard to break habitual breathing patterns mm -hmm. and then blow out most of their air and then sing. Mm -hmm. So we use percentages. So if I'm watching them tank up and they take a huge full breath, I might say, now breathe out 70% of your air and then sing. And if that's too much, we'll go to 50%. But you get them to start just really breathing out as much as possible. You can also have them do, uh, Brian Gill calls it a resistance breath, but have them tap on their fingers so they have some resistance so they don't over inhale. So they go, and then tell them one breath, that's it. And then they've only got that little bit of air and then they have to make it last. And as you can hear, as I'm talking on that one breath of air, it can last really long, even though it was really small. So we encourage them to figure out how long they can go on that teeny little breath. Mm. Right. And so playing around with those variations, either inhale it in, then exhale it out and sing on the last little bit that's left or give themselves a little bit of resistance so they don't over breathe and then have them breathe after only a quick one or two second inhalation. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, start there is the main place to go. Mm, great. Let's go back to the wheel. All right. Sounds fun. Let's see where it takes us. <laughs> Okay, so Tim Pan Alley is down at Broadway, and we're looking at... The larynx! Fun! Good! Okay, so first of all, can you just explain what Tim Pan Alley or, or Standard Broadway actually is as a genre? 
Yeah, so Tin Pan Alley era is the era in musical theater where in New York City you had this this street. They called it Tin Pan Alley because you could hear all the pianos banging and they said it sounded like people just banging on metal because there were all of these composers writing at the same time. And so it got to be known as that era. And this is, we're thinking like, you know, early 1900s, 20s, 30s, early 40s. And these songwriters are writing, they're publishing their music. That's how they're making their money. And there's some really common things. There's a lot of boom chucks, so more like. So that's your typical Broadway kind of a standard sound. There's a lot of jazz chords that come into it, a lot of jazz harmonies. So we're listening for those kinds of sounds. A lot of jazz influence in this era. This is definitely living in the more speech-based singing. This is not related to the golden age or the, like golden age, more operatic kind of singing style. And in fact, a lot of the ver early voice teachers in this uh, period hated this style of singing. There's a magazine called Etude Magazine, which was like the voice teacher's journal back from the late 1800s up through around the 1950s. And I was just reading an article last night about popular music and how it's terrible. And these are the low life people. And we have to educate these low, unintelligent people to like good music because otherwise they'll just drift towards crooners. And crooners were the types of people that were singing this style of music. So crooning was that really breathy vocal quality. And we see this really rise to popularity in the 1930s and 40s as the microphone becomes popular. Mm -hmm. Because pre-microphone, if you were singing light and breathy and going, hey there, you with the stars in your eyes, you can barely hear it. But once you get up near the microphone, hey there, you with the stars in your eyes, all of a sudden it works. Yeah. And now we can pipe that sound directly into somebody's front room, into their stereo, mm -hmm. and you can experience that breathy voice in a way that you can never experience in most live settings. So the microphone is a big driving factor of this work. They often will call this in music history books, the era of musical comedy. So these were comedic shows taking you know some of their traits from vaudeville, burlesque at the time. And so there's a lot of trying to get the words out, get the diction out so people understand it. There's a lot of internal rhymes that are meant to be clever and little jokes that are written inside of these lyrics as well. Mm. So when you're working with thinking about what's happening at the laryngeal level, first of all, registration is going to be more on the chest dominant side. This is the music of the people. Mm -hmm. And that whole, you know, very head voice dominant thing is a very Eurocentric vocal trait. In fact, there was a lot of talk in Victorian England in the 1800s about voice culture. Mm -hmm. And voice culture was the idea of training the voice to be used in a certain way with certain diction to sound more proper, to sound more middle class. Mm -hmm. And so that carries over into the United States as well. So that whole head voice dominant thing that works in classical singing and some of the early golden age musicals that are more operetta based doesn't really fit into this music of the people, which is this Tin Pan Alley style jazz influenced uh, musical comedy world. So we're looking usually for a registration that's more chest dominant, has more closure on the vocal folds. Then we're also looking for a larynx that's pretty flexible. Whereas in some of the more, you know, acoustically driven styles, you're looking for a fixed laryngeal position or even a lowered laryngeal position to get these vocal qualities. In this Tin Pan, pan Alley era, you want the larynx to be flexible enough to rise and fall as the pitch rises and falls. Because a lot of times as the lyrics get more exciting and the voice goes up, well, because it's speech-like, you want the timbre to go and brighten as well. When normal people get excited, their voices tend to get bright and they get high. So when we're singing in this speech-based thing, we want the voice to do the same thing. That's different than an opera when as the voice goes higher, we try to make resonance adjustments so the timbre of the top is in line or matches or blends with the timbre in the middle and the bottom. Mm. So when there's a base level line of working with this kind of repertoire that's kind of my thought process is where are we with laryngeal registration and do we have a larynx that's flexible enough to move and respond to the needs of the performer and then if not we need to go in and make some technical adjustments to free them up so that that can happen mm. you mentioned about going into chest with something like rolling in the deep before just to get that um, lower range seen to what technical exercises do you like to go to to fix the registration in chest for this genre and to get that laryngeal flexibility? Great. 
So for the adduction, I usually start and just see where they even are on um, single pitches. So can they go, um, <clears throat> let's see. Ah, if they can't get to there and they're giving me ha, ah, then we clearly need to work on adduction. One of the exercises in entry level place is just staccati. And to see a lot of times when you're doing staccato exercises, it's pulling the vocal folds together quickly. Sometimes this will snap somebody into chest. So again, ha, 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 and then going into sustained pitch. If they can't do that, we still get breathy. Then we get really assertive. And when we get really assertive, I like to use a nice hard glottal like ack, getting them to go ack, 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 and getting them to really suck those folds together. Now, it's important to note, this is a very aggressive exercise. I use it for like one to two minutes. I'm not doing this for five and 10 minutes at a time. And I tell them not to practice this a bunch at home. Mm. If they get stuck, they can go ack, 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 and then try to do ah just by themselves. Mm. I then get them, once I can establish that chest register, that nice adducted sound, what I do is I start having them do what I call chest voice planks. So if you think about planks, all you do is you get down on your elbows and your feet and you hold yourself up and just the act of holding in that stable position starts to engage the abdominal muscles enough to strengthen them. So we don't have to do anything fancy to strengthen adduction on the vocal folds. We just need to hold an adducted position. So to do that, once they can make that sound, I just have them sustain it out. So we just hold that D for as long as possible, ideally like 10, 15 seconds of just holding this note out. And then after they've accomplished, like I'm on a D right now, we take them up to an E flat and we work on sustaining that out as long as possible. We honor that physiological max once we hear that they're starting to hit a peak. So if you're working with somebody who was assigned female at birth, they're probably gonna start hitting that peak around F or G above middle C. If you're working with a tenor baritone bass, somebody assigned male at birth, you're gonna probably hit that peak around C or D above middle C. Technically, everybody has the same breaking point around E or F, but when I'm doing this uh, exercise, I'm trying to be careful about not injuring them. So we just take it up to what's comfortable. Yeah. After they've mastered single pitches, then we start working on glides. Can they glide a one-two-one glide? Then we try to get them to one three one, then to one four one, and then to one five one. Getting them used to getting those vocal folds together, and then elongating them while holding them together, and then bringing them back. As they get more comfortable with that, then we'll start working into stepwise motion one two three two one or one two three four five four three two one. And when that's comfortable, we then move to arpeggios. And so this is being very strategic. We're just working on the adductor muscles only on a sustained pitch. Then we're seeing if we can maintain adduction while lengthening the vocal folds. That's what the uh, glides are about. Then we try to see if we can make stops along the way, which is what's doing the stepwise motion is about. And then we see if we can make skips and hold everything together. And that's what the arpeggios are about. So it's very a strategic plan towards getting them to hold all of those uh, you know, qualities together. Then for laryngeal flexibility, I usually have them go through the three main vocal or laryngeal positions and then have them alternate be all, between all three. So the first one is the lower laryngeal position. I have them imagine that they're sipping spaghetti. And so they you know, suck in a string of spaghetti and go, and that should get their larynx low. And then we have them do, oh, have them do some vocalizations with it low. Mm -hmm. Then I have them do wow, 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 like a, a kid playing out on a playground, taunting another kid, a baby crying. And when they go wow, 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 that larynx usually goes up. So then we create a vocal exercise off of that. Wow, 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 wow. Then what I try to do is get them to find neutral. So I get them speaking. Usually I'll have them put their fingers around their larynx to feel where that neutral speaking is. Have them count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Then have them move from one, two, three, four, five to blah, 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 and maintain that blah, blah quality. And then tell them I want them to maintain blah, blah quality and timbre as they move pitch. So we went blah, 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 blah. That's maintaining it. Blah, 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 blah is letting the larynx move. So we want to shoot for the maintain, not the moving. Mm -hmm. After they can do, oh, the wah, 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 and the blah, 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 blah. We start taking the exact same set of pitches and do all three in a row. Oh, wah, 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 blah, 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 blah. So they get used to things moving in all those different directions. Now, to be truthful, there's lots of things moving at the same time. We have soft palate movements, jaw movements, tongue movements. 
but by just kind of bringing their focus in to what's happening in one part of their body, they become aware enough to have some understanding of whether it's doing what they needed to do or not. Mm-hmm. And what this usually does is show us if there's any pharyngeal constriction. Mm-hmm. And then the goal is, is then to get them to stop thinking about being overly mechanical and start realizing that I can make hooty sounds. Oh, I can make bright sounds. Yeah. And I can make neutral sounds. Hey, and when I make those sounds, this should be free enough to move. And if it's not moving, I should do some flexibility drills to get it moving. And then I should see if I can just think about being excited and if it'll go up as I get excited. Mm-hmm. Or if I can think about trying to calm somebody down or bring somebody into me. And if I can get my larynx to just drop and relax into a lower uh, or neutral place. So, you know, show them the movement possibilities, get them to name it for themselves, and then see if storytelling can lead the way. Amazing. And with belt in this particular thing, I know the wheel didn't spin on belt, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> That's fine. What sort of approach are we going to need to take? So, you know, a lot of these songs aren't going as high as songs go today. So back in the this era, they were writing belt notes up around Bs and Cs for those assigned female at birth. And then every once in a while, you would hit a D, but that's more rare. And, you know, the more tenor-like voices assigned male at birth, you're hitting more Gs and As here and there. You're not getting all the way up to Bs and Cs. Mm-hmm. So you can carry a more chest-dominant belt quality up here. And it's going to be a little bit heavier. So I like to think about, like, modern belting a lot like calling. If you're, you know, in a parking lot and you see a friend of yours and you go, hey, you're calling out to get their attention. That to me is the more of the mixed belt quality, right? Where we're going through in a lot of more modern contemporary stuff. Mm-hmm. We can use some calling in this Tin Pan Alley era, especially today. That's kind of become more of the standard for this. Mm-hmm. If you're going for a throwback sound, then we get into a call that's starting to get on the verge of a shout saying, hey, anything goes it's getting a little bit heavier than anything goes which is more of the calling out so it might get a little bit more on the shout side but you're only at that ef or g on a tenor or baritone or you're only on that a b or c on a soprano or an alto so we're not up where it starts getting really dangerous to take up that quality we want to be very careful though that none of this ever gets to the point of yelling yeah. Yelling is that out of control shouting where it's only emotionally driven and you are really, you know, grinding down on those vocal folds. That's bad. And it's not going to fit in this era either. Mm. So we're going towards calling. Some of the calling is going to get a little heavier, almost moving in the shout direction, but it should never be fatiguing. It should never hurt. And we should not see that you're losing your ability to sing this way in 10, 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Whatever we settle on should be sustainable for you for the length of an entire lesson, 30, 40, 50 minutes, depending, or an hour, you know, depending on where you are in your progress. It's also very individual. Somebody that's got a lighter voice like Kristen Chenoweth is going to have a different approach or a different result to their approach up here than somebody like Ethel Merman. Mm-hmm. So we also have to honor the voice in front of us and realize that there is a whole wide spectrum of sounds that could be acceptable for this era of music. And we need to dial in the one that's sustainable for the singer we're working with. Mm. So would having like a twang approach be acceptable for somebody who maybe needed a bit more of an acoustical resonance help? Yeah, yep. They can add a little bit of twang to it. I think the key thing is, is that you know, we can break down twang into oral twang or nasal twang. Mm-hmm. I think we want to be careful that it doesn't get too much of that nasal twang, except in the instances where it's what was traditionally considered a character mm-hmm. voice. And so there are characters that talk like this and sing everything like this. Think about Adelaide and guys and dolls. Mm-hmm. So for them, using some nasal twang, absolutely, you need it in there. Uh, for some more of the other comedic characters in this, uh, you know, era of repertoire. Yeah, you're going to use some of that. But otherwise, you're probably drifting a little bit more towards the oral twang side of things. Mm, great. Let's go back to the wheel. Good. <laughs> right, where are we going to land? Let's see. It's so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Contemporary legit and... Matt's joy. <laughs> we were almost there the last time, so <laughs> good. Well, then let's talk, we'll talk a little bit about some uh, interesting things with this. So first of all, 
I use the term legit because that's what the industry uses and the industry is not going to change anytime soon. But I think that it's really worth pointing out that the legit means legitimate. And if we go back to the roots of our profession, which is going back into the early 1900s, you have to understand that legitimate was a term that was used to describe what was believed to be legitimate singing, which was classical based singing. Everything else was not considered legitimate. And there was a whole lot of classism and racism against people who use their voices otherwise. If you look around at music from other cultures across the world, there was a lot of chest dominant singing, a lot of that calling quality in the voice. And that was considered bad in this era because it was associated with people who were not white Europeans. And so that was considered not legitimate singing. Legitimate singing was the style of singing that we know as classical, which has its roots in the Catholic Church. And then it builds into the secular forms of opera and, you know, all the art song and things that we know now. Mm -hmm. So this term isn't the best. And at some point in time, it'd be great to have another one, uh, another term for it. There's actually, uh, you know, this term's origination actually comes with Shakespeare productions. And there were actually debates in the parliament over in England about what was considered, you know, different levels of Shakespearean performance and legitimate Shakespeare was one thing. And then you had all this lower class version of Shakespeare Mm -hmm. as well. Well, that translates over to the States and we see some of the same things. That's where we get our Astor Place riots, where there's literally a a battle. It's like a war out in the street over which Shakespeare production is better and which (laughs) one's more righteous. Happens in New York City. People died over Shakespeare. Good. Yeah. Well, and they burnt down an entire theater over this. So this term has a lot of baggage with it. Yeah. But we still use it because that's what the industry is stuck on. And it's hard to change an entire industry. When we say, though, contemporary legit, what we're saying is that these are songs that have a lot of pop influence in them, even though they have some of that orchestral grand writing style of what's considered the golden age, which depending on the music historian you look at, it's the music written between Showboat and around uh, Fiddler on the Roof. So, you know, there's it's it's flexible on these dates. It's not like we hit Fiddler on the Roof and everybody's like, oh, well, now we're done with that and we're moving on. No, there's still composers writing around that time. We just have, you know, arbitrarily kind of set Fiddler as the the ending point. Hair comes very soon after that Mm -hmm. and that starts this new rock era. But the um, the idea with the contemporary legit is that they're all on microphones. So think about a show like Les Mis. Mm. Les Mis has some big epic writing. It's very orchestral in its writing. You do have head dominant singing. You have classically influenced singing. But when they get to their vows, they're not always doming them up. They're not going, there, out to the darkness. They're usually using more of a speech-like quality that has some of that uh, still operatic quality in it. There, out in the darkness, a fugitive running. So it's got more of a, a slightly spread, more speech-like vowel quality instead of that vertical north to south quality. Whereas in the uh, more golden age era, you would have been going for consistent vibrato throughout. When we get in this contemporary legit, there's a lot of straight tone that's inside of the sound with vibrato at the ends of phrases. Mm -hmm. And whereas in the golden age, you would never get away with breathy singing. In the contemporary legit, you can get some of that hushed, breathier singing qualities. Like if you think about Bring Him Home from Les Mis, God on high. We could never do that in the 1940s or 50s without a microphone. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden, when we get into these 1980s where everybody is on a mic, we can sing with that kind of a vocal quality and still be heard. The other thing is, is that the acting styles have changed throughout this uh, time gap as well. The uh, acting director and teacher Stanislavski, his acting troupe, so he starts in Russia with this idea of realism when otherwise there's a lot of jazz hands, a lot of slapstick, commedia dell'arte based acting. And he starts bringing in this idea of realism and putting real life on stage. And his theater comes in the late 20s. There's the group theater, which is doing his work in the 30s. And then they're spreading out. And that message is starting to go throughout New York and throughout the rest of the country in terms of acting style. But your composers who are still writing in this era, that's still a relatively new thing. So realism is there, but we still have a lot of extended thought. And a lot of things that harken back to opera's times. So if you think about the song, If I Loved You. In a modern day musical, we would go, if I loved you time and again, I would try to say, we would just get it out in the moment. Mm. 
but in the golden age, you were still letting the vocal line and the instrumental line carry the emotion, carry the story and the message. And that's why in that era we have, if I loved you, and we get these long epic phrases. Mm. So we see a lot of that in golden age and less of that in contemporary legit. In contemporary legit, we're starting to see more of a shortening of it and things are moving a little bit more in a realism-based delivery of the text mm -hmm. versus this kind of hybrid between the operatic ideal of the music really being part of conveying the emotion and the big picture, the vocal lines and the way they're written to a more vocal speech-like delivery of the lines in what I call this contemporary legit era. Mm. It's so interesting, isn't it? And how yeah. also if we look at some musicals that were written back in that golden age time and now they're being put on as a revival we can kind yeah. of see that contemporary legit slowly eking into the originals as well yeah there's definitely i mean i always bring up the example of cinderella go mm -hmm. listen to the original recording of cinderella and then listen to laura osna sing cinderella they're very different and I don't think you're going to see this change anytime soon. I think you'll have throwbacks that every once in a while somebody will do that. But we've seen those revivals do okay, not great. Mm -hmm. We see the Evan Hansen's doing really, really well. Mm -hmm. You know, times change. And art had a bad tendency in the early 20th century to become more of a museum mm -hmm. creation instead of, you know, a living, breathing thing. Theater has tried to keep it living and breathing, but opera got stagnant in the 1920s. If you look, the top 10 operas produced in the United States today are all mostly written before 1920. Mm -hmm. It got to be a museum piece. Now, again, this goes into some of this classism that was happening with the aristocrats who were living in New York City who had a big grip on art, uh, the artistic community. And they were the same group of people that started Carnegie Hall, that started Juilliard, that started um, this A2 magazine group, which then starts the Music Teachers National Association, which then gives birth to the National Association of Schools of Music, which then gives birth to the National Association of Teachers of Singing. They all come from the same group together. And they were really trying to preserve and conserve this ideal from the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And they were trying to make America more cultured. And in their idea, that was this European idea of culture. Mm -hmm. And so we have a lot of those influences of trying to preserve and to hold on to things that held down a lot of, you know, art in this country. And then you have the theater world that just kind of took off and it started bringing in pop rock and doing all the things. Mm -hmm. And so there was this divide there for a while. And uh, we still see it. We're seeing people break that, like the composer David Little, an opera composer, is starting to integrate drums and other electronic instruments into his work, mm. but we're still performing a lot of Mozart. Mm. But on the musical theater side, when we perform our Mozarts, which are our golden age musicals, we do contemporize them because mm. otherwise paying audiences aren't that into those sounds, right? We see it with Music Man. We have belting of a song that used to be sung with a more classical you know, approach. Yeah. It's what audiences like, so we deliver what they like. Mm. What would you say that funding has influenced because are we going to see less big orchestrations more acto muso more electronic elements because of the lack of funding for musicians and big scale productions oh 100 absolutely i mean costs are a big part of it if you can do last five years with you know four or five people playing the music and two people on stage and you know it's a popular show that will sell out your four or five hundred seat theater of course you're going to be inclined to do that versus trying to do a version of carousel mm -hmm. it's, you just can't afford to do it that way i think that's why we're starting to see some of these big golden age musicals be produced by uh, opera companies here in the united states you know, all these tours that go on the musical theater tours in the United States and most of your Broadway shows, there's Roundabout Theater Company, which is a nonprofit, but all your other Broadway theaters are for-profit entities. They need to make money. And these shows cost about a million dollars plus a week to run. So you need to sell a million dollars plus each week in ticket sales. Mm -hmm. So popular opinion matters. Opera companies have been living on the donor model since, again, the late 1800s, the early 1900s. There was actually a guy named Theodore Thomas. He's the first person to start the Chicago Symphony. And he went to Chicago to start his symphony because he found a group of donors 
who were willing to let him do whatever he wanted to with the music, even if it didn't make money. And it didn't. Yeah. When he started the Chicago Symphony, it did not make money. It lost a lot. But the donors were willing to underwrite that because they all believed that this classical music was the music of God. It was the music from on high. And it was their duty to try to help elevate the lower classes by teaching them to appreciate good music. And so they were willing to donate money to do that, to establish a higher level of culture in this country. Mm -hmm. This is also the same group of aristocrats that in New York City start building theaters with box seats. So that's where you start selling the box seats first and then selling these subscription seats on the bottom. And then you have the riffraff sitting up in the upper chambers to be able to look down and still be there. Mm -hmm. But that theater was built for the aristocrats to be able to go to. Those theaters often didn't make enough money to survive and they collapsed unless the donors stepped up to pay for them. Mm -hmm. And in this country, opera is still running on that model. Opera company expenses are only covered at about, I think it's around 35% right now. 30, 35% of opera company expenses are covered by box office sales. The other 70% come from grants and donations. Mm. And musical theater on Broadway just can't function that way. No. So they're going to continue to adapt and do whatever it takes to cover their bottom line because it is a for-profit art form. Mm. Now you have nonprofit regional theaters throughout the United States that do get um, grant funding, do get donor funding. They have a little bit more ability to take on some risks, to do some more old, uh, you know, uh, fashion productions of things. But how long that'll last is anybody's guess. With the economy the way that it is, you know, donors change as the economy changes. Yeah. So, you know, and it is also yet to be determined what future generations of uh, retirees who have money to donate are going to want to donate to. Mm. But my guess is the music of their youth. And right now, the music of their youth is rock and roll. Yeah. It's the early days of rock and roll. Elvis Presley, the 1960s Woodstock. You know, there's a reason we're doing a lot of shows that have that kind of music in it. Mm. Let's give the wheel a send off. Let's give one more. Okay. Show. Sounds good. Okay. Golden Age. All right. Golden Age. Paired with. registration all right <clears throat> so in your if you're going for a traditional golden age sound you are probably going for more of an operatic balance and registration because that is what these shows were being written off of with this idea i would say more operetta than opera but it's both of those influences are there together. Some of these composers went and studied over in Europe or they studied with people in the United States who had studied in Europe. So there's that big European influence. They're writing music in this era where there is definitely a bias against speech-like singing and any singing that is not from this you know, uh, classical foundation. And, uh, you know, if you want to read more about this on your own, I, there's a great book by uh, his last name's Potter. It's called Vocal Authority. It's got a lot of this information in it. And then just go look up the archives of Etude magazine and start searching on this articles about singing. You'll see what they have to say. I'll say give you a trigger warning ahead of time. There's a lot of racist writings in there. Some of the ways that they refer to other people of our community are pretty derogatory. Mm -hmm. uh, but so but that was their mindset. That's their authentic place that they were coming from in that time. So you're writing for a more operatic style voice. I think then this gets into what we were talking about, though, is we have our modern contemporary productions of it today. And the registration shifts a little bit and in interesting ways. For those who are performing characters that were written as tenors and baritones, you're almost lightening up the registration a little bit. You're bringing a little bit less adduction into the upper part. So there's less of that hey! kind of a sound on some of those high notes, like you listen to the soliloquy. Uh, there's a little bit less of that versus the 93 recording where it's a tenor voice that's singing it and they're lightening up as they go. So less uh, and more ha ah! inside of that sound. Those who are sopranos and altos and mezzos, they are singing with a little bit more chest dominance, a little less inside of the sound and a little bit more speech like. And then we're also seeing, this gets a little bit away from the registration, but the vowel quality is also shifting, where the vowel quality is those proper vowels, which actually comes from this idea of proper speech in England. Uh, I can't remember what the name of it is, but there is a, 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 a certain pronunciation type that was considered like the middle class pronunciation type. Mm -hmm. And today we start hearing more of the colloquial speech of America today, 
but you're still singing with that registration through that quality. Got to remember that vowels do have an impact on laryngeal registration. They're all truly coupled together. So they work in tandem. But I would say that that's probably the biggest difference is that your sopranos and altos are bringing a little bit more chest voice, a little bit speech-like quality into this style if we're reviving it today, where your baritones and tenors and basses are lightening up a little bit today. And if we're going to do a throwback era uh, production of this, we might just straight up hire opera singers to do it like they did when they did South Pacific at Lincoln Center. They hired an opera singer to come be Emilio. So we can do that as well. Or, you know, get the voices that have been trained in that tradition and have been doing musicals that way. Because there is room for those kinds of artists. There's mm -hmm. less work that's that way. Uh, when we did some research in 2012, we looked at a thousand casting notices looking for singers. And it was only 5% of them were asking for a golden age audition song. So it's a very small percentage, but if you're really good at it, you can make a living doing that kind of work. Mm -hmm. And with traditional legit, like your carousels, how do you help guide somebody into finding a, a more head voice dominant place? So we do a lot of bringing that, like you would do with the classical singers, bringing the head voice down. Mm -hmm. When you're working on bringing that head resonance down, if they're a musical theater performer, one of the things that tends to happen is their back room tends to collapse. So I like to use the front room, back room metaphor that Ken Bozeman's come up with, where everything behind the hump of the tongue is considered the back room and everything in front of the hump of the tongue is considered the front room. We know that changes to the back room result in timbre, cha timbre shifts and changes to the front room usually result more in vowel clarity. Mm -hmm. So if we're trying to go for that more head dominant uh, quality, we need the back room to open up. Mm -hmm. So we need to make sure that the soft palate is getting out of the way. We need to make sure that the tongue isn't falling into the back room so that the tongue is you know, fronted and enough that we have space between it and the back pharyngeal wall. One of the things I find really helpful for achieving that are blowfish. Mm -hmm. Blowfish are where you put your finger up against your lips, you curl your lips in a little bit, and then you sing blowing out against it. You let your cheeks puff as you do it, and you let your body basically create an air pillow inside of your vocal tract to open everything up. And so by getting that opening, then we have the acoustic setup necessary to get a nice resonant and projected head dominant approach. Yeah. Um, sometimes if the singer isn't moving enough air, I like to do a straw into water so they have a visualization of them releasing air and that straw has some of the same benefits as the blowfish to get everything opened up. And then what we really have to do is spend time teaching them to make vowel adjustments that are minimal. So when we're singing speech, like our tongue can bounce all over the place. In fact, it needs to. Mm. But when we're going for that more traditional sound, we need the movements of the tongue to be more in millimeters. Mm. That the shift between ah and e is slight, not drastic like it is in speech, like or pop based singing. Mm. So spending time to even out, those are where we would do vowel exercises. We're going to e, 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 trying to get those vowels to match, trying to go through the whole vowel series and get all of them to blend together in order to start getting a more consistent resonance which will work better for that traditional approach than what we would do in a more speech-like based approach for a contemporary rendition of it mm. it's so cool i have one last question for you about identity i know that's where your work yeah. also lies when we are teaching actors to be a musical theater how can we ensure that their identity is also being realized so i start by asking them like who are you? Why do you do this? So I think it's asking questions and getting to know them as a human being. Look, we all sing, no matter what genre we sing, we sing to communicate the human experience through song. And so if we're doing that, then we need to honor the experience of the human that's standing in front of us. So saying to them, you know, why do you create? So do you create to make other people think deeply about issues that are important to you? Do you create to make people forget about their troubles? Do you create to help people fall in love again or realize, you know, remember the way that they fell in love with whoever they are? Like, why do you create? And you start getting those answers. As you get those answers, then you start asking, so what songs are you singing? What roles are you going after? And do those align with your artistic purpose, your mission? Mm. And you, if they don't, then we get rid of them. And then we start to continue to hone that in. So you say your mission is to, you know, make people be happy to, you know, help them forget their troubles. 
you don't pick a whole lot of happy songs. So could we maybe pick some happy songs and then get them to figure out why that's not happening? Sometimes it's, well, because I thought I needed to develop my vocal technique and that is really important. So I'm trying to get my resonance right and all that. Well, in happy songs, none of that matters, right? We're not trying to get perfection. We're not trying to get along legato line. So let's drop that desire to get technical perfection and instead get into authentic communication of these songs with messages that make people feel something that you want them to feel and start making sure that the voice is moving in those directions and honoring their cultural identity. If somebody comes from the deep South in the United States, you do run into this problem because in the industry people don't always love accents and there are some prejudice against certain accents like a southern accent but you then have to get with the artists and talk about like what are you comfortable giving up Mm -hmm. because really otherwise if we make them give up everything that's part of them you're silencing their cultural identity and this becomes really important if you're working with somebody from a culture that's completely different than yours. So if you're working with somebody, if I have a Korean uh, tenor who comes and works with me, who's a Korean pop singer, and I start just trying to take my Western European ideal of everything and shove it on this person, I'm starting to wipe out their cultural identity and the way that they might use language, the way that they may use their vowel structure, the way that they may want to sing vocal lines. So I have to really start to understand how their identity is going to inform what they're doing and make sure that I don't erase things from their technique that actually fit in line with who they are as a human being. Mm -hmm. And so I look at my work with singers as being a guide. I don't have all the answers all the time. Nobody does. It's impossible. There are too many communities of people to be helped. There are too many special situations. We can't know it all. Mm -hmm. But what I can do is be your guide. You can say, hey, this is what I'm trying to do. I can listen to it and go, great. Well, if I reverse engineer that, this is what's happening at the vocal fold level. Here's what they're doing with their articulatory system. Let's start training you to be able to do that. And then once I think I have them there, I can say, is that what you're looking for? And then they can say, yes, no, almost. We tweak and adjust. And I keep saying, is that what you're looking for? What do you want? Mm -hmm. And then they'll often at times say, well, what do you think? Then I'll tell them what I think. Well, I think that if you're trying to go for a New York audition, they might want a little bit more of this. So let's try integrating that and let's see what you think. We'll record it, listen back to it and they go, yeah, I feel good about that. Good, I do too. Mm-hmm. Now we've come to an agreement that everybody feels good about and we can send them out into the world and they've been able to preserve part of who they are, communicate the message that's important to them and still be in line in alignment with what the ultimate goal is. Mm-hmm. Great. You mentioned a couple of resources just there for us to check out. Are there any others that you are a big fan of that you would recommend to our listeners? So for musical theater, look up the book Acting in Musical Theater by Joe Deere and Rocco Delvera. And um, it's an amazing book. And Joe Deere is a good friend. He's incredible. And that book, I think, is probably one of the most complete resources there is about, you know, all of this work. Um, they're acting and helping people act and get their voice to go there. If you're a classical singer and you're going, look, I want to know more about this musical theater. Matt scares me a little bit. That's okay. I, I, I know I'm pretty out there on some things. I would highly recommend, though, going and looking at Mary Saunders Barton and Norman Spivey's book about cross-training in the studio. They have great information in there that integrates some of the classical work along with the Beltine work, and it will get you to a lot of the same places that I'm talking about. Um, If you are looking at this and you want to know more about uh, CCM styles, there's two books about CCM. One is the book that was uh, So You Want to Sing CCM that was published as part of that Nat series. Uh, There's also the Training Commercial Singers that was written by Elizabeth Benson, and it has interviews of a bunch of different CCM teachers. So I would say dive into both of those books and you're going to learn a lot about what other people who are doing the same work that I am are thinking about and, you know, the kind of work that they're doing. If you're fascinated by some of the history behind this and some of the biases and things that I talked about, look up the book Highbrow, Lowbrow. It's a really fascinating read about the cultural history of music in America. If you want to learn a little bit about musical theater, there's a book called The Rise and Fall of Broadway. And that's a really good book. A spoiler alert, he believes rock and roll and contemporary music is ruining Broadway. So get that perspective and look at it. You know, a lot of things about microphones are not very positive. <laughs> and then go pick up The Theater Will Rock. 
and the theater will rock will tell you about how we got to this place with rock musicals where a lot of it started and it takes you down into a deep dive of that but uh those books will keep you busy for a while yes absolutely matt edwards thank you so much i've had such a great time chatting with you and obviously playing the wheel game. Yeah. it was a lot of fun well thank you very much for having me i enjoyed this and uh you know, if you check out the thing and you have questions or anything, you can feel free to jump over to my website. It's edwardsvoice.com. There's contact form. You can reach out to me there and, uh, you know, ask your questions. There is so much to unpack with all of this. You know, we run a summer institute at my university and even nine days is not enough. Nine and 12 hour days is not enough. But, uh, you know, it's a really fun world to play in. It's a fun sandbox to be in because it's always changing and uh, it's never going to be stagnant. Brilliant. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. If you're enjoying the Singing Teachers Talk podcast, and who are we kidding? Of course you are. Share the love by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a comment. Just head to the Singing Teachers Talk main page on the Apple Podcast app and scroll to the bottom to click Write a Review.